Welcome to this Uvula audio presentation of Starborn by Andrea Norton. Volume 6, Chapter 12, Alien Patrol. Rafe leaned back against the wall. Long since, the actions of the aliens in the storage house had ceased to interest him, since they would not allow any of the Terrans to approach their plunder, and he could not ask any questions. Lablet continued to follow the officer about, vainly trying to understand his speech, and Hobart had taken his place by the upper entrance, his hand held stiffly across his body. The pilot knew that the captain was engaged in photographing all this activity with a wristband camera, hoping to make something of it later. But Rafe's own inclination was to slip out and do some exploring in those underground corridors beyond. Having remained where he was for a wearisome time, he noticed that his presence was now taken for granted by hurrying aliens who rushed about him intent upon their assignments. And slowly he began to edge along the wall toward the other doorway. Once he froze as the officer strode by, Lablet in attendance. But what the painted warrior was looking for was a crystal box on a shelf to Rafe's left. When he had pointed that out to an underling, he was off again and Rafe was free to continue his crab's progress. Luck favored him, for as he reached the moment when he must duck out the portal, there was a sudden flurry at the other end of the chamber where four of the aliens, under a volley of orders, strove to move an unwieldy piece of intricate machinery. Rafe dodged around the door and flattened back against the wall of the room beyond. The moving bars of sun said that it was midday, but the room was empty save for the despoiled carcass, and there was no sign of the aliens who had been sent out to scout. The Terran ran lightly down the narrow room to the second door, which gave on to the lower pits beneath and the way to the arena. As he took that dark way, he drew his stun gun. Its bolt was intended to render the victim unconscious and not to kill, but what effect it might have on the giant reptiles was a question he hoped he would not be forced to answer, and he paused now and then to listen. There were sounds deceptive sounds, noises as regular as footfalls, like a distant padded running. Was this the aliens returning, or the things they had gone to hunt? Rafe crept on, out into the sunshine that filled the arena. For the first time he studied the enclosure and recognized it for what it was, a place in which savage and bloody entertainments could be provided for the population of the city, and it merely confirmed his opinion of the aliens and all their ways. The temptation to explore the city was strong. He eyed the grills. They could be climbed, he was sure of that. Or he could try some other of the various openings about the sanded area. But as he hesitated over his choice, he heard something from behind. This was no unidentifiable noise, but a scream that held both terror and pain. It jerked him around and sent him running back almost before he thought. But the scream did not come again. However, there were other sounds. Snuffing, whines, a scrabbling. Rafe found himself in the round room, walled by the old prison cells. Stabs of light shot through the gloom, thrusting into a roiling black mass that had erupted through one of the entrances and now held at bay one of the alien warriors. Three or four of the black creatures ring the alien in, moving with speed that eluded the bolts of light he shot from his weapon keeping him cornered and from escape, while their fellows worried another alien limp and defenseless on the floor. 
Rafe discovered that it was impossible to align the sights of his stun gun with any of those flitting shadows. They moved as quickly as a ripple across a pond. He snapped the button on the hand grip to spray and proceeded to use the full strength of the charge across the group on the floor. For several seconds, he was afraid that the stun ray would prove to have no effect on the alien metabolism of the creatures, for their weaving, tearing activity did not cease. Then one after another dropped away from the center mass and lay unmoving on the floor. Seeing that he could control them, Rafe turned his attention to the others around the standing warrior. Again, he sent the spray wide, and they subsided. As the last curled onto the pavement, the alien moved forward, and with a snarl, deliberately turned the full force of his beam weapon on each of the attackers. But Rafe plowed on through the limp pile to the warrior they had pulled down. There was no hope of helping him. Death had come with a wide tear in his throat. Rafe averted his eyes from the body. The other warrior was methodically killing the stunned animals, and his action held such vicious cruelty that Rafe did not want to watch. When he looked again at the scene, it was to find the narrow barrel of the strange weapon pointed at him. Paying no attention to his dead comrade, the alien was advancing on the Terran, as if in Rafe he saw only another enemy to be burnt down. Moves drilled in him by long hours of weary practice came almost automatically to the pilot. The stun gun faced the alien rifle sight to sight, and it seemed that the warrior had developed a hearty respect for the Terran arm during the past few minutes, for he slipped his weapon back into the crook of his arm, as if he did not wish Rafe to guess he had used it to threaten. The pilot had no idea what to do now. He didn't wish to return to the storehouse, and he believed that the alien was not going to let him go off alone. The ferocity of the creatures now heaped around them had been sobering, an effective warning against venturing alone in these underground ways. His dilemma was solved by the entrance of a party of aliens from another doorway, they stopped short at the site of the battlefield, and their leader descended upon the surviving scout for an explanation, which was made with gestures Rafe was able to translate in part. The alien had been far down one of the neighboring corridors with his dead companion when they had been tracked by the pack and had managed to reach this point before they were attacked. For some reason Rafe could not understand, the aliens had preferred to flee rather than to face the menace of the hunters, but they had not been fast enough and had been trapped here. The gesturing hands then indicated Rafe, acted out the battle which had ensued. Crossing to the Terran pilot, the alien officer held out his hand in motion for Rafe to surrender his weapon. The pilot shook his head. Did they think him so simple that he would disarm himself at the mere asking, especially since the warrior had rounded on him only a few minutes before? Nor did he holster his gun. If they wanted to take it by force, just let them try. His determination to resist must have gotten across to the leader, for he did not urge obedience to his orders. Instead, he waved the Terran to join his own party, and since Rafe had no reason not to, he did, leaving the dead, both alien and enemy, where they had fallen. The warriors took another way out of the underground maze, a way that brought them out into a street running to the river. Here, the party spread out, paying close attention to the pavement, as if they were engaged in tracking something. Rafe saw impressed in one patch of earth, a print dried by the sun, left by one of the reptiles, and there were smaller tracks he could not identify. All were inspected carefully, but none of them appeared to be what his companions sought. They trotted up and down along the riverbanks, and from what he had already observed concerning the aliens, Rafe thought that the leader at least was showing exasperation and irritation. They expected to find something, 
It was not there, but it had to be, and they were fast reaching the point where they wanted to produce it themselves to justify the time spent in hunting. Ruthlessly, they raided to death any creature their dragnet drove into the open, leaving feebly kicking bodies of the furry, long-legged beasts Rafe had first seen after the landing of the spacer. He couldn't understand the reason for such wholesale extermination, since certainly the rabbit-like rodents were harmless. In the end, they gave up their quest and circled back to come out near the field where the flitter and the globe rested. When the Terran flyer came into sight, Rafe left the party and hurried toward it. Sariki waved a welcoming hand. About time one of you showed up. What are they doing, toting half the city here to load into that thing? Rafe looked along the other's pointing finger. A party of aliens towing a loaded dolly were headed for the gaping hatch of the globe, while a second party and an empty conveyance passed them on the way back to the storehouse. They are emptying a warehouse, or at least trying to. Well, they act as if old time himself was heating their tails with a rocket flare. What's their big hurry? Somebody has been here. Swiftly, Rafe outlined what he had seen in the city and ended by describing the hunt in which he had taken an unwilling part. I am hungry, he ended, and went to burrow for a ration pack. So somebody has been trying to beat the painted lads to it. The furry people, you think? mused Sariki as Rafe chewed the stuff that never had the flavor of fresh provisions. It was a spear shaft they found broken with the dead lizard thing, Rafe commented, and some of those on the island were armed with spears. Must be good fighters if armed with spears they brought down a reptile as big as you say. It was big, wasn't it? Rafe stared at the city, a square of half-eaten concentrate in his fingers. Yes, that was the puzzler. The dead monster would be more than he would care to tackle without a blaster, and yet it was dead, with a smashed spear for evidence as to the manner of killing. All those others dead in the arena, too. How large a party had invaded the city, and where were they now? I would like to know, he was speaking more to himself than to the Comtech, how they did it. There were no other bodies. Well, those could have been taken away by their friends. Sariki suggested. But if they're still hanging around, I hope they won't believe that we're bigger and better additions of the painted lads. I don't want them to spear through me. Rafe remembered the maze of lanes and streets, bordered by buildings that could provide hundreds of lurking places for attackers, which he had threaded with the confidence of ignorance earlier in the day, and he began to realize why the aliens had been so nervous. Had a sniper with a blast rifle been stationed at a vantage point somewhere on the roofs today, none of them would have ever returned to this field. And even a few spacemen with good cover and accurate throwing aim could have cut down their number to a quarter or a third. He was developing a strong distaste for those structures, and he had no intention of returning to the city again. He lounged about with Sariki for the rest of the afternoon, watching the ceaseless activity of the aliens, it was plain that they were intent upon packing into the cargo hold of their ship everything they could wrest from the storage house, as if they must make this trip count double. Was that because they had discovered that their treasure house was no longer inviolate? In the late afternoon, Hobart and Lablet came back with one of the work teams. Lablet was still excited, full of what he had seen, deduced or guessed during the day, 
but their captain was very quiet and sober, and he unstrapped the wrist camera as soon as he reached the flitter and turned it over to Sariki. Run that through the ditto, he ordered. I want two records as soon as we can get them. The contact's eyebrows slid up. You think you might lose one, sir? I don't know. Anyway, we'll play it safe with double records. He accepted the ration pack Rafe had brought out for him, but did not unwrap it at once. Instead, he stared at the globe, digging the toe of his space boot into the soil as if he were grinding something to powder. They're operating under full jets, he commented, as if they were about due to be jumped. They told us this was territory now held by their enemies, Lablet reminded him. And who are these mysterious enemies? The captain wanted to know. Those animals back on the island? Rafe wanted to say yes, but Lablet broke in with a question concerning what had happened to him, and the pilot outlined his adventures of the day, not forgetting to give emphasis to the incident in the celled room when the newly rescued alien had turned on him. Well, naturally they are suspicious, Lablet countered, but for our people who lack spaceflight, I find them unusually open-minded and ready to accept us, strange as we must seem to them. Ditto done, Captain. Sariki stepped out of the flitter, the wrist camera dangling from his fingers. Good. But Hobart did not buckle the strap about his arm once more. Neither did he pay any attention to Lablette. Instead, apparently coming to some decision, he swung around to face Rafe. You went out with that scouting party today. Think you could join them again if you see them moving for another foray? I could try. Sure, Sariki chuckled. They couldn't do any more than pop him back at us. What do you think about them, sir? Are they fixing to blast us? But the captain refused to be drawn out. I'd just like to have a record of any more trips they make. He handed the camera to Rafe. Put that on, and don't forget to trigger it if you do go. I don't believe they'll go out tonight. They aren't too fond of being out in the open in darkness. We saw that last night. But keep an eye on them in the morning. Yes, sir. Rafe buckled on the wristband. He wished that Hobart would explain just what he was to look for. But the captain appeared to think that he had made everything perfectly plain. The captain walked off with Lablette, heading to the globe as if there was nothing more to be said. Sariki stretched. I'd say we'd better take it watch and watch, he said slowly. The captain may think they don't go off in the dark, but we don't know everything about them, now do we? Suppose we just keep an eye on them, and then you'll be ready to tell. Rafe laughed. Telling would be it. I don't think I'll have a second invitation, and if I get lost... But Sariki shook his head. That you won't. At least if you do, I'm going to make a homer out of you. Just tune in your helmet buzzer. I needed a contact to think of a thing like that. A small adjustment to the earphones built into his helmet, and Sariki, operating the flitter comm, could give him a guide as efficiently as Spacer's radar. He did not fear about being lost in the streets should he lose touch with those he was spying upon. That is a great idea. You're right on course. He pulled off his helmet and then glanced up to find Sariki smiling at him. Oh, we're not such a bad collection of spice bums. 
Maybe you'll find that out someday, boy. They breezed you into this flight right out of training, didn't they? Just about. Rafe admitted cautiously, on guard as ever against revealing too much of himself. After all, his experience was part of his record, which was open to anybody on board the Spacer. Yes, he was not a veteran, and they must all know that. Someday, you lose a little of that suspicion. The contact continued. And find out, it isn't such a bad old world after all. Here, let's see if you're on the beam. He took the helmet out of Rafe's hands and, drawing a small case of delicate instruments from his belt pouch, unscrewed the ear plates of the comm device and made some adjustments. Now that'll keep you on the buzzer without bursting your eardrums. Try it. Rafe fastened on the helmet and started away from the flitter. The buzzer that he had expected to roar in his ears was only a faint drone, and above it he could easily hear other sounds. Yet it was there, and he tested it by a series of loops away from the flyer. Each time as he came on the true beam, he was rewarded by a deepening of the muted note. Yes, he could home in on the ship with that, and at the same time be alert to any other noise in the vicinity. That's it! He paid credit where it was due, but he was unable to break his long habit of silence. Something within him still kept him wary of the context's open friendliness. None of the aliens approached the flitter as the shadows began to draw in. The procession of moving teams stopped, and most of the burden-heavy warriors withdrew to the globe and stayed there. Sariki pointed this out. They're none too sure themselves. Look as if they are closing up for the night. And indeed it was. The painted men had hauled up their ramp. The hatch in the globe closed with a definite snap. Seeing that, the contact laughed. We have a double reason for a strict watch now. Suppose whatever they've been looking for jumps us. They're not worrying about that, it appears. So they took watches, three hours on and three hours rest. When it came Rafe's turn, he did not remain sitting in the flitter, listening to the contact's heavy breathing, but walked a circular beat that took him into the darkness of the night in a path about the flyer. Overhead, the stars were sharp and clear, glittering gem points. But in the dead city, no light showed and he was sure that no aliens camped there tonight. He was sleeping when Sariki's grasp on his shoulder brought him to that instant alertness he had learned on field maneuvers half the galaxy away. Business! The context voice was not above a whisper as he leaned over the pilot. I think they're on the move. The light was the pale gray of pre-dawn. Rafe pulled himself up with caution to look at the globe. The contact was right. A dark opening showed on the alien ship. They had released their hatch. He fastened his tunic, buckled on his equipment belt and helmet, and strapped on his boots. Here they come, Sariki reported. One, two, five. No, six of them, and they're heading for the city. No dollies with them. They are all armed. Together the Terrans watched that patrol of alien warriors their attitudes suggesting that they hoped to pass unseen, hurrying toward the city. Then Rafe slipped out of the flyer. His dark clothing in this light should render him largely invisible. Sariki waved encouragingly, and the pilot answered with a quick salute before he sped after his quarry. Chapter 13 A Hound is Loosed Dalgar's feet touched gravel, 
He waded cautiously to the bank, where a bridge across the river made a concealing shadow on the water. None of the mermen had accompanied him this far. Sasuri, as soon as his human comrade had started for the storage city, had turned south to warn and rally the tribes, and the merpeople of the islands had instituted a loose chain of communication that led from a clump of water reeds some two miles back to the seashore and so out to the islands. Better than any of the now legendary comms of his Terran forefathers were these minds of the spies in hiding who could pick up the racing thoughts beamed to them and pass them on to their fellows. Although there were no signs of life about the city, Dalgard moved with the same care that he would have used in penetrating a snake devil's lair. In the first hour of dawn, he had contacted a hopper. The small beast had been frightened almost out of coherent thought, and Dalgard had had to spend some time in allaying that terror to get a fractional idea of what might be going on in this countryside. Death. The hopper's terror had come close to insanity. Killers had come out of the sky, and they were burning, burning, and all living things were fleeing before them. And in that moment, Dalgard had been forced to give up his plan for an unseen spy ring that would depend upon the insistence of the animals. His information must come via his own eyes and ears. So he kept on, posting the last of the mermen in his mental relay well away from the city, but swimming upstream himself. Now that he was here, he could see no traces of the invaders, since they could not have landed their skyships in the thickly built-up section about the river it must follow that their camp lay on the outskirts of the metropolis. He pulled himself out of the water. Bow and arrows had been left behind with the last merman. He only had his sword knife for protection, but he was not there to fight, only to watch and wait. Pressing the excess moisture out of his scant clothing, he crept along the shore. If the strangers were using the streets, it might be well to get above them. Speculatively, he eyed the buildings about him as he entered the city. Dalgard continued to keep at street level for two blocks, darting from doorway to shadowed doorway, alert not only to any sound but to any flicker of thought. He was reasonably sure, however, that the aliens would be watching and seeking only for the people. Though they were not telepathic as their former slaves, those others were able to sense the near presence of a merman so that the sea people dared not communicate while within danger range of the aliens without betraying themselves. It was the fact that he was of a different species, therefore possibly immune to such detection, that had brought Dalgard into the city. He studied the buildings ahead. Among them was a cone-shaped structure that might have been the base of a tower that had all the stories above the third summarily amputated. It was ornamented with a series of bands of high relief, bands bearing the color script of the aliens. This was the nearest answer to his problem. However, the scout did not move toward it until a long moment of both visual and mental inspection of his surroundings. But that inspection did not reach some twelve streets away where another crouched to watch. Dalgard ran lightly to the tower at the same moment that Rafe, shifted his weight from one foot to the other behind a parapet as he spied upon the knot of aliens gathered below him in the street. The pilot had followed them since that early morning hour when Sariki had awakened him, not that the chase had led him far in distance, 
most of the time he had spent in waiting, just as he was doing now. At first he had believed that they were searching for something, for they had ventured into several buildings, each time to emerge conferring, only to hunt out another and invade it. Since they always returned with empty hands, he could not believe that they were out for further loot. Also, they moved with more confidence than they had shown the day before. That confidence led Rafe to climb above them so that he could watch them with less chance of being seen in return. It had been almost noon when they had at last come into this section. If two of them had not remained idling on the street as the long moments crept by, he would have believed that they had given him the slip, that he was now a cat watching a deserted mouse hole. But at that moment they were coming back, carrying something. Rafe leaned as far over the parapet as he dared, trying to catch a better look at the flat, box-like object two of them had deposited on the pavement. Whatever it was either needed some adjustment, or they were attempting to open it with poor success, for they had been busied about it for what seemed an unusually long time. The pilot licked dry lips and wondered what would happen if he swung down there and just walked in for a look-see. That idea was hardening into resolution when suddenly the group below drew quickly apart, leaving the box sitting alone as they formed a circle about it. There was a puff of white vapor, a protesting squawk, and the thing began to rise in jerks as if some giant in the sky was pulling at it spasmodically. Rafe jumped back. Before he could return to his vantage point, he saw it rise above the edge of the parapet, reach a level five or six feet above his head, hovering there. It no longer climbed. Instead, it began to swing back and forth, describing in each swing a wider stretch of space. Back and forth. Watching it closely made him almost dizzy. What was its purpose? Was this a detection device to locate him? Rafe's hand went to his stun gun. What effect its rays might have on the box he had no way of knowing, but at that moment he was sorely tempted to try the beam out with the oscillating machine as his target. The motion of the floating black thing became less violent. It swooped smoother as if some long idle motor was now working more as its builders had intended it to perform. The swing made wide circles, graceful glides as the thing explored the air currents. Searching. It was plainly searching for something. Just as plainly, it could not be hunting for him, for his presence on that roof would have been uncovered at once. But the machine was, it must be, out of sight of the warriors in the street. How could they keep in touch with it if it located what they sought? Unless it had some built-in signaling device. Determined to keep it in sight, Rafe risked a jump from the parapet of the building where he had taken cover to another roof beyond, running lightly across that as the hound bobbed and twisted away from its masters and out across the city in pursuit of some mysterious quarry. The climb that had looked so easy from the street proved to be more difficult when Dalgard actually made it. His hours of swimming in the river, the night of broken rest, had drained his strength more than he had known. He was panting as he flattened himself against the wall, his feet on one of the protruding bands of colored carving, content to rest before reaching for another hold. To all appearances, the city about him was empty of life, except for the certainty of the mer people that the alien ship and its strange, 
companion had landed here, he would have believed that he was on a fruitless quest. Grimly, his lower lip caught between his teeth, the scout began to climb once more, the sun hot on his body, drawing sweat to dampen his forehead and his hands. He did not pause again, but kept on until he stood on the top of the shortened tower. The roof here was not flat, but sloped inward to a cup-like depression, where he could see the outline of a round opening, perhaps a door of sorts. But at that moment he was too winded to do more than rest. There was a drowsiness in that air. He was tempted to curl up where he sat and turn his rest into the sleep his body craved. It was in that second or so of time when he began to relax, to forget the tenseness that gripped him since his return to this ill-omened place that he touched. Dalgard stiffened as if one of his own poisoned arrows had pricked his skin. Rapport with the merpeople, with the hoppers, and the runners was easy, familiar. But this was no such touch. It was like contacting something that was icy, cold, inimical from birth, something that he could never meet on a plane of understanding. He snapped off mind-questing at that instant and huddled where he was, staring up into the blank turquoise of the sky, waiting for what he did not know. Unless it was for that other mind to follow and ferret out his hiding place, to turn him inside out and wring from him everything he ever knew or hoped to learn. As time passed in long breaths, he was not so invaded. He began to think that while he had been aware of contact, the other had not, and emboldened, he sent out a tracer. Unconsciously, as the tracer groped, he pivoted his body. It lay there. At the second touch, he withdrew in the same second, afraid of revelation. But as he returned to probe delicately, ready to flee at the first hint that the other suspected, his belief in temporary safety grew. To his disappointment, he could not pierce beyond the outer wall of identity. There was a living creature of a high rate of intelligence, a creature alien to his own thought processes, not too far away. And though his attempts to enter into that closer communication grew bolder, he could not crack the barrier that kept them apart. He had long known that contact with the merpeople was on a lower, a far lower, band than they used when among themselves, and that they were only able to talk with the colonists because of generations that they had exchanged thought symbols with the hoppers and other unlike species. They had been frank in admitting that while those others could be aware of their presence through telepathic means, they could not exchange thoughts. So now his own band, basically strange to this planet, might well go unnoticed by the once dominant race of Astra. They, or him, or it, were over in that direction. Dalgard was sure of that. He faced northwest and saw for the first time about a mile away the swelling of the globe. If the strange flyer reported by the merpeople was beside it, he couldn't distinguish it from this distance. Yet he was sure that the mind he had located was closer to him than that ship. And then he saw it. A black object rising by stiff jerks into the air as if it were being dragged upward against its inclination. It was too small to be a flyer of any sort. Long ago the colonists had patched together a physical description of those others that had assured them that the aliens were close to them in general characteristics and size. No, 
that couldn't be carrying a passenger, then what was it, and what was its purpose? The object swung out in a gradually widening circle. Dalgard held to the walled edge of the roof. Something within him suggested it would be wiser to seek some less open space, that there was danger in that flying box. He released his hold and went to the trap door. It took only a minute to fit his fingers into the round holes and tug. Its stubborn resistance gave and stale air whooshed out into his face as it opened. In his battle with the door, Dalgard had ignored the box, so he was startled when, with a piercing whistle, almost too high in the scale for his ears to catch, the thing suddenly swooped into a screaming dive, apparently heading straight for him. Dalgard flung himself through the trap door, luckily landing on one of the steep curved ramps. He lost his balance and slid down to the dark, trying to break his descent with his hands, the eerie screech of the box trumpeting in his ears. There was little light in the section of the cone building, and he was brought up with bruising force against a blank wall two floors below where he had so unceremoniously entered. As he lay in the dark trying to gasp some breath back into his lungs, he could still hear the squeal. Was it summoning? There was no time to be lost in getting away. On his hands and knees, the scout crept along what must have been a short hall until he found a second descending ramp, this one less steep than the first, so that he was able to get to his feet while using it, and the gloom of the next floor was broken by odd scraps of light that showed through pierced portions of the decorative bands. The door was there, a locking bar across it. Dalgard did not try to shift them at once, although he laid his hands upon it. If the box was a hound for hunters, had it already drawn its masters to this building? Would he open the door only to be faced by the danger he wished most to avoid? Desperately, he tried to probe with the mind touch, but he could not find the alien band. Was that because the hunters could control their minds as they crept up? His kind knew so little of those others, and the merpeople's hatred of their ancient masters was so great that they tended to avoid rather than study them. The scout's sixth sense told him that nothing waited outside, but the longer he lingered with that beacon overhead, the slimmer his chances would be. He had to move in quickly. Sliding back the bar, he opened the door a crack and looked out into the deserted street. There was another doorway to take shelter in some ten feet away. Beyond that, an alley wall overhung by a balcony. He marked these refuges and went out to make his first dash to safety. Nothing stirred, and he sprinted. There came again that piercing shriek to tear his ears as the floating box dived at him. He swerved away from the doorway to dart on under the balcony, sure now that he must keep moving, but under cover so that the black thing could not pounce. If he could find some entrance into the underground ways, such as those that ran from the arena, but now he was not even sure in which direction the arena stood, and he dared no longer climb to look over the surrounding territory. He touched the alien mind. They were moving in, following the lead of their hound. He must not allow himself to be concerned. The scout fought down a surge of panic, attempted to battle the tenseness that tied his nerves. He must not run mindlessly either. That was probably just what they wanted him to do. So he stood under the balcony and tried not to listen to the shrilling of the box as he studied the strip of alley. This was a narrow sideway and he had not made the wisest of choices in entering it, for not much farther along it bordered with smooth walls protecting what once had been gardens. 
He had no way of telling whether the box would actually attack him if he were caught out in the open. To put that to a test would be foolhardy, nor could he judge its speed of movement. The walls. A breeze that blew up the lane carried with it the smell of the river. There was a slim chance that it might end in water, and he had a feeling that if he could reach the stream, he would be able to baffle the hunters. He did not have long to make up his mind. The aliens were closer. Lightly, Dalgard ran under the length of the balcony, turned sharply as he reached the end of its protective cover, and leapt. His fingers gripped the ornamental grillwork, and he was able to pull himself up and over the narrow runway. A canopy was still over his head, and there came a bump against it as the baffled box thumped. So it would try to knock him off, if it could get a chance. That was worth knowing. He looked over the walls. They guarded masses of tangled vegetation grown through years of neglect into thick mats, and those promised a way of escape, if he could reach them. He studied the windows, the door opening onto the balcony. With the hilt of his sword knife, he smashed his way into the house to course swiftly through the rooms to the lower floor and find the entrance to the garden. Facing that briary jungle on the ground level was a little daunting. To get through it would be a matter of cutting his way. Could he do it and escape that bobbing, shrilling thing in the air? A trace of pebbled path gave him a ghost of a chance, and he knew that these shrubs tended to grow upward and not mass until they were several feet above the ground. Trusting to his luck, Dalgard burrowed into the green mass, slashing with his knife at anything that denied him entrance. He was swallowed up in a strange, dim world where dead shrubs and living were intertwined together to form a roof, cutting off the light and heat of the sun. From the sour earth sliming his hands and knees arose an overpowering stench of decay and disturbed mold. In the dusk, he had to wait for his eyes to adjust before he could mark the line of the old path he had taken for his guide. Fortunately, after the first few feet, he discovered that the tunneled path was less obstructed than he had feared. The thick mat overhead had kept the sun from the ground and killed off all the lesser plants so that it was possible to creep along a fairly open strip. He was conscious of the chitter of insects, but no animals lingered here. Under him the ground grew more moist and the mold was close to mud in consistency. He dared to hope that this meant that he was either approaching the river or some garden stream feeding into the larger flood. Somewhere the squeal of the hunter kept up a steady cry, but unless the foliage above him was distorting that sound, Dalgard believed that the box was no longer directly above him. Had he in some way thrown it off his trail? He found his stream, a thread of water, hardly more than a series of scummy pools, with the vegetation still meeting almost solidly over it and it brought him to a wall with a drain through which he was sure he could crawl. Disliking to venture into that cramped darkness, but seeing no other way, the scout squirmed forward in slime and muck, feeling the rasp of rough stone on his shoulders as he made worm's progress into the unknown. Once he was forced to halt, and in the dark, loosen and pick out stones embedded in the mud bottom, narrowing the passage. On the other side of that danger point, he was free to wriggle on. Could the box trace him now? He had no idea of the principle on which it operated. He could only hope not. Then before him, he saw the ghostly gray of light 
and squirmed with renewed vigor to be faced by a grill. Beyond that was the open world. Once more his knife came into use as he pried and dug at the barrier. He worked for long moments until the grill splashed out into the sluggish current a foot or so below, and then he made ready to lower himself into the same flood. It was only because he was a trained hunter that he avoided death in that moment. Some instinct made him dodge even as he slipped through, and the hurtling black box did not strike true at the base of his brain, but raked along his scalp, tearing the flesh and sending him tumbling, unconscious, into the brown water. Chapter 14. The Prisoner Rafe was two streets away from the circling box, but still able to keep it in sight when its easy glide stopped, and in a straight line it swooped toward a roof, emitting a shrill, rising whistle. It rose again a few seconds later, as if baffled, but it continued to hover at that point, keening forth its warning note. The pilot reached the next building, but a street still kept him away from the conical structure above which the box now hung. Undecided, he stayed where he was. Should he go down to the street level and investigate? Before he had quite made up his mind, he saw the foremost of the alien scouting party round into the thoroughfare below and move purposefully at the cone tower, weapons to the fore. Judging by their attitude, the box had run to earth the prey that they had been searching for. But it wasn't to be so easy. With another eerie howl, the machine soared once more and bobbed completely over the cone to the street that must lie beyond it. Rafe knew that he could not miss the end of the chase and started on a detour along the rooftops that should bring him to a vantage point. By the time he had made that journey, he found himself on a warehouse roof that projected over the edge of the river. From a point farther downstream, a small boat was putting out. Two of the aliens paddled while a third crouched in the bow. A second party was picking its way along the bank some distance away. Both groups seemingly headed toward a point a building or two to the left of the one where Rafe had taken cover. He heard the shrilling of the box and saw it bobbing along a line toward the river. But in that direction, there was only a mass of green. The end to the weird chase came so suddenly he was not prepared, and it was over before he caught a good look at the quarry. Something moved down on the riverbank, and in that same instant the box hurtled earthward as might a spear. It struck, and the creature who had just crawled out was out on the ground as far as Rafe could see, toppled into the stream. As the waters closed over the body, the box slewed around and came to rest on the bank. The party in the boat sent their small craft flying toward the spot where the crawler had sunk. One of the paddlers abandoned his post and slipped over the side, diving into the oily water. He made two tries before he was successful and came to the surface with the other in tow. They did not try to heave the unconscious captive into the boat, merely kept the lolling head above water as they turned downstream once more and vanished from Rafe's sight around the end of a pier, while the second party on the bank reclaimed the now quiet box and went off. But Rafe had seen enough to freeze him where he was for a moment. The creature that had popped out of the ground only to be struck by the box and knocked into the river. He would take an oath on the fact that it was not one of the furred animals he had seen on the sea island. Surely it had been smooth-skinned, 
not unlike the aliens in confirmation. One of their own kind they had been hunting down? A rebel? A criminal? Puzzled, the pilot moved along from roof to roof, trying to pick up the trail of the party in the boat. But as far as he could see now, the river was bare. If they had come ashore anywhere along here, they had simply melted into the city. At last, he was forced to use the homing beam, and it guided him back across the deserted metropolis to the field. There was still activity about the globe. They were bringing in loot from the warehouse, but Lablet and Hobart stood by the flitter. As the pilot came up to them, the captain looked up eagerly. What happened? Rafe sensed that there had been some change during his absence, that Hobart was looking to him for an explanation to make clear happenings here. He told his story of the hunt and its ending, the capture of the stranger. Lablet nodded as he finished. That is the reason for this. You may depend upon it, Captain. One of their own people is at the bottom of it. Rafe wanted to ask of what, but Siriki did it for him, and Hobart smiled grimly at this question. We are all traveling back together. Take off in the early morning. For some reason they wanted us out of the globe in a hurry. Practically shoved us out half an hour ago. Though the Terrans kept a watch on the larger ship as long as the light lasted, the darkness defeated them. They did not see the prisoner being taken aboard. Yet none of them doubted that sometime during the dusky hours it had been done. It was barely dawn when the globe took off the next day, and Rafe brought the flitter up on its trail, heading westward into the sea wind. Below them the land held no signs of life. They swept over the deserted terrace city that was the gateway to the guarded interior, flew back over the line of sea islands. Rafe climbed higher, not caring to go too near the island where the aliens had wrought their terrible vengeance on the trip out, and all four of the Terrans knew relief, though they would not admit it to each other, when once more Siriki was able to establish contact with the distant spacer. Should I turn north, sir? the pilot asked. I could ride her beam in from here. We don't have to follow them home. He wanted to do that so badly it was almost a compulsion to make his hand move on the controls. And when Hobart did not answer at once, he was sure the captain would give him that order, taking them out of the company of those he had never trusted. But Lablet spoiled it. We have their word, Captain. Just that anti-grav unit that they showed us last night alone. Imagine the breakthroughs we could make with that. So Hobart shook his head, and they meekly continued on the path set by the globe across the ocean. As the hours passed, Rafe's inner uneasiness grew. For some queer reason that he could not define to himself or explain to anybody else, he was now possessed by an urgency to trail the globe that transcended and then erased his dislike of the aliens. It was as if some appeal for help was being broadcast from the other ship, drawing him on. It was then that he began to question his assumption that the prisoner was one of them. Over and over again in his mind, he tried to repicture the capture as he had witnessed it from the building just too far away, and at the slightly wrong angle for a clear view. He could swear that the body he had seen tumble into the flood had not been furred. That much he was sure of. But clothing, yes, there had been clothing. Not, his mind suddenly produced that one scrap of memory, not the bandage windings of the aliens. And hadn't the skin been fairer? Was there another race on this continent, one they had not been told about? 
When they at last reached the shore of the western continent, and finally the home city of the aliens, the globe headed back to its birth, not in the roof cradle from which it had arisen, but sinking into the building itself. Rafe brought the flitter down on a roof as close to the main holding of the painted people as he could get. None of the aliens came near them. It seemed they were to be ignored. Hobart paced along the flat roof, and Sariki sat in the flyer, nursing his calm, intent upon the slender thread of beam that tied them to the parent ship so many miles away. I don't understand, Lablet's voice rose almost plaintively. They were so persuasive about our accompanying them. They were eager to have us see their treasures. Why are they being so off-putting now? Hobart swung around. Somehow, the balance of power has changed. In their favor, I'd give anything to know more about that prisoner of theirs. You're sure it wasn't one of those furry people? He asked Rafe, as if hoping against hope that the pilot would reply in doubt. Yes, sir. Rafe hesitated. Should he air his suspicions that the captive was not of the same race as his captors either? But what proof had he beyond a growing conviction that he could not substantiate? It must have been a rebel, a thief. Lablet was ready to dismiss it as immaterial. Naturally, they would be upset if they were having trouble with one of their own men. But to live now, just when we are on the verge of new discoveries. That anti-gravity unit alone is worth our whole trip. Imagine being able to return to Earth with the principle of that. Imagine being able to return to Earth with our skins on our backs, was Sariki's whispered contribution. If we had the sense of a Venusian water knit, we'd blast out of here so quick our tail fumes would take off with us. Privately, Rafe concurred, but the urge to know more about the mysterious prisoner was still prickling at him until he, contrary to his usual detachment, felt driven to discover all he could. It was almost, but Rafe shied away from that wild idea. It was almost as if he was hearing a voiceless cry for aid, as if his mind was one of Sariki's comms, tuned in on an unknown wavelength. He was angrily impatient with himself for that fantastic supposition. At the same time, another part of his mind, as he walked to the edge of the roof, and looked out at the buildings he knew were occupied by the aliens, was busy examining the scene as if he intended to crawl about on rooftops on a second scouting expedition. Finally, the rest decided that Lablet and Hobart were to try to establish contact with the aliens once more. After they'd gone, Rafe opened a compartment in the flitter, the contents of which were his particular care. He squatted on his heels and surveyed the neatly stowed objects inside thoughtfully. A survival kit depended a great deal on the type of terrain in which the user was planning to survive. An aquatic world would require certain basic elements, frozen tundra, others. But there were a few items common to every emergency, and those were now at Rafe's fingertips. The blast bombs, sealed into their pexilod cases, guaranteed to stop all the attackers the Terran explorers had so far met on and off worlds, a coil of rope hardly thicker than a strand of knitting yarn, but of inconceivable toughness and flexibility. An aid kit with endurance drugs and pep pills that could keep a man on his feet and going long after food and water failed. He had put them all in their separate compartments. For a long moment, he hunkered down there, studying the assortment, 
And then, almost as if some will other than his own was making a choice, he reached out. The rope curled around his waist under his tunic so tautly that his presence could not be detected without a search. Blast bombs went into the sealed seam pocket on his breast, and two flat containers with their capsules were tucked away in his belt pouch. He snapped the door shut and got to his feet to discover Suriki watching him. Only for a moment was Rafe disconcerted. He knew he would not be able to explain why he must do what he was going to do. There was no reason why he should. Suriki, except for being a few years his senior, had no authority over him. He was not under the Comtech's direct orders. You going on another trip into the blue? The pilot responded with a curt nod. Somehow, boy, I don't think anything's going to stop you. So why am I wasting my breath? Use your homer, though, and your eyes. Rafe paused. There was an unmistakable note of friendliness in the context warning. Almost, he was tempted to try and explain. But how could he make plain feelings for which there was no sensible explanation? Sometimes it was better to be quiet. Don't dig up more than you can rebury, boy. That warning and the slang current when they had left Terra was reassuring simply because it was of the earth he knew. Rafe grinned, but he did not head toward the roof opening and the ramp inside the building. Instead, he set a course he had learned in the other city, swinging down to the roof of the neighboring structure, intent on working away from the inhabited section of the town before he went into the streets. Either the aliens had not set any watch on the Terrans, or else their interest was momentarily engaged elsewhere. Rafe, having gone three or four blocks in the opposite direction to his goal, made his way through a silent, long-deserted building to the street without seeing any of the painted people. In his ear buzzed the comforting hum of the calm, tying him with the flitter, and so in a manner to safety. He knew that the alien community had gathered in and around the central building. To his mind, the prisoner was now either in the headquarters of the warriors, where the globe had been birthed, or had been taken to the administration building. Whether he could penetrate either stronghold was a question Rafe did not yet face squarely. But the odd something that tugged at him was as persistent as the buzz in his earphones. And an idea came. If he were obeying some strange call for assistance, couldn't that in some way lead him to where he sought? The only difficulty was that he had no way of being more receptive to the impulse than he was now. He could not use it as a compass bearing. In the end, he chose the center as his goal, reasoning that if the prisoner were to be interviewed by the leaders of the aliens, he would be taken to those rulers, and they would not go to him. From a concealed place across from the open square on which the building fronted, the pilot studied it carefully. It towered several stories above the surrounding structures, to some of which it was tied by ways above the streets. To use one of those bridges as a means of entering the headquarters would be entirely too conspicuous. As far as the pilot was able to judge, there was only one entrance on the ground level, the wide front door with the imposing picture-covered gates. Had he free use of the flitter, he might have tried to swing down from the hovering machine after dark, but he was sure that Captain Hobart would not welcome that suggestion. Underground, perhaps? There had been those ways in that other city, a city which, though built on a much smaller scale, was not too different in general outline from this one. The idea was worth investigation. The doorway that had afforded him a shelter from which to spy out the land yielded to his push. 
and he went through three large rooms on the ground floor, paying no attention to the strange groupings of furnishings, but seeking something else that he had the luck to find in the last room, a ramp leading downward. It was in the underground that he made his first important find. They had seen ground vehicles in the city, a few still in operation, but Rafe had gathered that the fuel and the extra parts for the machines were now so scarce that they were only used in emergencies. Here, however, was a means of transport quite different, a tunnel through which ran a ribbon of belt, wide enough to accommodate three or four passengers at once. It did not move, but when Rafe dared to step out upon its surface, it swung under his weight. Since it ran in the general direction of the center, he decided to use it. It trembled under his tread, but he found that he could run along it, making no sound. The tunnel was not in darkness, for square plates set in the roof gave a diffused violet light. However, not too far ahead, the light was brighter, and it came from one side, not the roof. Another station on this abandoned way? The pilot approached it with caution. If his bump of direction was not altogether off, this must be either below the center or very close to it. The second station proved to be a junction where more than one of the elastic paths met. Though he crouched to listen for a long moment before venturing out into open space, he could hear or see nothing that suggested that the aliens ever came down now to these levels. They had provided an upward ramp, and Rafe climbed it, only to meet his first defeat at its top, for here there was no opening to admit him to the ground floor of what he hoped was the center. Baffled by the smooth surface over which he vainly ran his hands, seeking for some clue to the door, he decided that the aliens had, for some purpose of their own, walled off the lower regions. Discouraged, he returned to the junction level, but he was not content to surrender his plan so easily. Slowly he made a circuit of the platform, examining the walls and ceiling. He found an air shaft, a wide opening striking up into the heart of the building above. It was covered with a grill, and it was above his reach, but... Rafe measured the distances and planned his effort. The mouth of a junction tunnel ran less than two feet away from that grill. The opening was outlined with a ledge that made a complete arch from the floor. He stopped and triggered the gravity plates on his space boots, made to give freedom of action when the ship was in freefall. They might just provide a weak suction here. And luckily they did. He was able to climb that arch and, standing on it, work loose the grill that had been fashioned to open. Now. The pilot flashed his hand torch up into that dark well. He'd been right, and lucky. There were holds at regular intervals. Something must have been serviced by workmen in here. This was going to be easy. His fingers found the first hold, and he wormed his way into the shaft. It was not a difficult climb, for there were niches along the way where the alien mechanics, who had once made repairs, had either rested or done some of their work. There were also grills at each level that gave him at least a partial view of what lay beyond. His guess was right. He recognized the main hall of the center as he climbed past the grid there, heading up toward those levels where he was sure the leaders of the aliens had their private quarters. Twice he paused to look in upon conferences of the gaudily wrapped and painted civilians, but since he could not understand what they were saying, it was a waste of time to linger there. He was some eight floors up when chance, luck, or that mysterious something that had brought him into this venture 
led him into the right place at the right time. There was one of those niches, and he had just settled into it, peering out of the grid, when he saw the door at the opposite end of the room open, and in marched a party of warriors with a prisoner in their midst. Rafe's eyes went wide. It was the captive he sought. He had no doubt of that. But who or what was that prisoner? This was no fur-covered half-animal, nor was it one of the delicate-boned, decadent, painted creatures such as those who now ringed in their captive. Though the man had been roughly handled and now reeled rather than walked, Rafe thought for one wild instant it was one of the crew from the spacer. The light hair showing rings of curl, the tanned face that beneath dirt and bruises displayed a very familiar cast of features, the body hardly covered by rags of clothing. They were all so like those of his own kind that his mind at first refused to believe this was not someone he knew. Yet as the party moved toward his hiding place, he knew he was facing a total stranger. Stranger or not, Rafe was sure that he saw a Terran. Had another ship made a landing on this planet? One of those earlier ships whose fate had been a mystery on their home world? Who and when and why? He huddled as close to the grid as he could get, alert to the slightest movement below as the prisoner faced his captors.